Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 47, and we have an amazing treat today. I have like to welcome my guest, um, Heidi Gill with Urban Solutions. She is a she's local in Denver. We are not we're recording in this in our respective offices and studios, um, but we're actually like a couple miles apart right now. So, um, (laughs) Heidi, I'm going to talk a lot about the market and sort of timestamp this. It's Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. A lot has happened today and oil prices are are way up. But I wanted to introduce you and say hello. Um, And all the stuff that I'm going to talk about, you're more than welcome to jump in if you want to chime in on Fed and inflation, you know, just jump in and interrupt me. Okay, perfect. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, lots to discuss right now. Very, very interesting times. Absolutely. So, and the focus of this podcast is really going to be because, so Heidi is based here in Denver. Um, She has a company called Urban Solutions. So we're going to talk about that. And we really want to talk about the state of sort of the Colorado oil and gas market, the Denver Julesburg Basin, and what's sort of happening from a regulatory front. But um, Heidi is a business owner. She has a lot of employees. And so getting her perspective as a sort of a service company in this space, what's going on, I think is is just going to be a fantastic conversation. But with that being said, it is Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. Oil prices right before this uh, were 107.68, so we're pushing this this 108. We saw 108 today for WTI. Brent is 110.07. Nat gas is 8.38, and that number is just driving me crazy. That's way way too high for natural gas prices, and I think hitting the consumer on so so many fronts. And I'm I'm actually more concerned about natural gas prices from an inflationary standpoint and recession than I am about oil prices. Um, Dutch TTF on a dollar MMBTU basis. That's our, our European benchmark. That's at 32 bucks right now. And I'm adding a metric um, and that's the 30 year fixed mortgage rate. And we are almost at 5.6%. And, um, you know, I tweeted this out and put it on LinkedIn, but that 30 year fixed mortgage rate is really serious. And it's not that people can't handle 5.6%. It's the rate of increase because we were at basically 3% and change in January. And it's that rapid rate of increase that is something that I am, you know, really concerned about with the consumer. Um, and so I think today, and again, you're welcome. You're welcome to jump in at any moment. But today we had Jerome Powell, the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, come out and had raised interest rates by 50 basis points. Um, and he ruled out actually, he ruled out a 75 basis point rate hike, and basically said would have several consecutive rate increases of 50 basis points. He did emphasize. The, um, the job market thing, and this is where the mortgage rates get involved, is that um, a lot of economists came out afterward and, and even before and said that before he did his, his question and answer session is that we're going to have to see unemployment um, significantly rate rise because we're in the 3% change for unemployment. And everyone's saying we're going to have to go to 5% in order to get inflation back in line. So meaning the economy is going to have to soften and people are going to have to start losing jobs because right now we have one applicant for every, for basically every two, for, for one job posting, uh, for, yeah, for every job posting, we have, um, like half of an applicant. It's 1.9. It's a two to one ratio right now. Um, so the problem is, is that we just don't have enough people to fill these jobs. And that is really, really problematic. So for every uh, 1.9 job postings, we have one applicant. And that um, I'd love actually from your running a business here in Colorado, I, that is something I would like to touch on. So I will sort of set this Fed stuff aside, even though it can go on for, for a long time. But I think that's that's a nice timestamp here. Um, and yeah, the, there's a lot to talk about with Colorado. We had 
you know, 600,000 barrels a day of oil production, largely coming from Weld County in 2019. We're at 450,000 barrels a day ish right now, still largely coming from Weld County. Um, but COVID really took a big hit on Colorado. But before that, it was, you know, Prop 112, and which was defeated. But then it was all the stuff with SB 181, which I'd like to get into. So without further ado, I think maybe, you know, introducing it, telling us a little bit about what Urban Solutions is. I think a lot of people know you for this, you know, sound walls and sound barriers. And if you're driving out, if you're driving out north of Denver and you're seeing rigs, you're seeing these sound walls. And I'm always like, hey, that's probably Heidi. So um, <laughs> tell us what Urban is. Tell us about how you started, the, you know, starting the business. And, and we'll get into jobs and inflation and all this nerdy stuff. Yeah. Um, great, great recap of everything that's going on right now. Um, so I'm Heidi, CEO, founder and CEO of Urban Solution Group, obviously. Um, and we started out as a predominantly energy service company that specialized in nuisance impacts in social compatibility with oil and natural gas development. So really noise, light, dust, odor, aesthetics, and things like that, and working with the communities and the operators to help mitigate those impacts. Um, and so started Urban about five years ago, and we have a patent on a type of sound wall that um, is by far recognized as um, really the best product throughout the country in regard to performance, safety, and really mitigating those nuisance impacts. So here, um, in, and I'll focus on this, so so predominantly in the oil and natural gas industry, in the last two years, we've really made quite a bit of diversification, um, doing some work in renewables and helping with those projects. I mean, there's huge opposition against uh, renewable projects as well. Um, and then actually, we're doing a lot in the crypto space right now in regards to really similar stuff. Again, noise issues, um, you know, with with the actual containers and miners. Um, and then also, you know, your public opposition for the project. So um, Urban Now is working throughout the country um, and predominantly our stuff outside of Colorado is actually in renewables and crypto. And the majority of the work that we do in Colorado is oil and gas focused. Um, and really that stems from, you know, we have a, a fleet, we could be on about 30 to 35 drilling rigs at once with our patented product. And we were manufacturing nonstop and we can go into kind of the, the inflation piece that we're seeing on the manufacturing side in a little bit. Um, but we shut down the manufacturing line when COVID hit and um, we have not started back up again since. So Urban's patented product is fully committed in long-term contracts with the larger operators throughout the state. So really, we are asked to bring our products to other countries or excuse me, other uh, states throughout the country, but we just don't have any of the demand. And then we keep it here because Colorado really is ground zero for everything that you're talking about in regard to political and regulatory challenges for our industry. So that's a high level of kind of what we do. That's we do enough. a lot in... Yeah, we do a lot in uh, noise engineering, noise modeling. We built a new software and the new software actually has a really large Colorado regulatory component. Um, so we're launching it here. But then the idea is, is we'll bring it to other basins um, as like regulatory uh, creep is inevitable. Um, so, so yeah, so we're majority, I mean, probably 80% of the market share of sound walls in Colorado is urban's. Um, and then what we do aside from that is also noise mitigation plans and lots of the engineering that goes into the permits. And that game has completely changed post SB 181. Um, so real quickly, I mean, I think that you referenced, you know, Prop 112, the market has been ever evolving. You know, I started Urban in 2017. Um, the politics and the regulations have really been continuously on this roller coaster here in Colorado. So speaking about Colorado specifically, 
Um, you know, we had Prop 112, which uh, voters, you know, we were able to get past that. But then we had SB 181 that was passed legislatively. So in regard to we just, um, a lot we, of... Hold, yep. Pause one just second. So this is where I, this is a great way to sort of enter this and we'll get back into your business and stuff. But so just for listeners to understanding, if you're not super familiar with Colorado, Prop, Proposition 112 was in, was in 2018. Colorado has a very flexible, easily amendable constitution. So people are always trying to throw stuff onto it. Proposition 112 was basically going to be a very aggressive setback measure within Colorado. And it was defeated. Um, and it was largely defeated. I mean, Yes, there was some some uh, I think partisanship on the uh, defeated, but it was it was defeated because it was looked to be economically devastating to Colorado. Uh, but then Jared Polis was elected as governor, and he made it very clear. I mean, within the first interview on Nine News right after he was elected, that he was not a fan of oil and gas, and he was going to regulate it. And then SB one eighty one, which is something. This is where I would like to sort of love your perspective in explaining this because I know that you've been on the front lines of this. Of SB one eighty one was sort of. A, really jammed through on the Senate side and doesn't uh, quite unfair and biased and has had massive ramifications to how the COGCC, the Colorado Oil and Gas um, Commission, how they are actually regulate permits, how the structure of the COGCC, who's on it, um, and how we actually permit oil and gas wells. So I'd love for you to explain, and I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I know you have a, a great explanation. Oh, I'd love for you to sort of explain this SB 181, what sort of when did that start and how did this go through and, and what it actually ended up doing? Because I don't think a lot of people are super familiar with it. Yeah. And so I'm not a political, you know, I'm not a, I don't follow the politics or the sessions quite as closely as, as some that would speak on this topic, um, but I am somebody is, that can understand. Opinion. Yeah. Um, I am somebody that definitely has opinions on it. And then also can tell you the impact as I see it from how operators are seeing it. And then, you know, obviously we're a service company, but um, through our customers and how they're seeing it and we're helping them navigate it. So um, yes, I, I think it's been, it's historically, you know, Governor Polis has not been an advocate of this industry. Um, you know, he's been pretty outspoken against it. His narrative today, I don't know if you've watched more recently, has shifted that we are open for business and he wants industry to know that we want to foster oil and natural gas development here. Um, I think that what a lot, I think that there's lots of, reasons maybe why he's changing his tone on how he addresses things now versus pre-SB 181. Um, but yeah, I, I will leave that there. Um, but I do think that um, what what we're seeing is, so SB 181 got pushed through very abruptly. Um, I actually wrote an op-ed on this and said, hey, don't, don't pass this. And, and not saying that if the regulations... Um, if the regulations in there are, are, are proper and they're the way that they need to be passed, fine. But what I had posed to the commissioners is basically said, okay, don't pass this as is. Go ahead and slow down and take six pads that would be in different parts of Colorado and put those through these new regulations and get three that would be approved and three that would be denied because the big difference with SB 181, so Colorado is a home rule state, meaning local governments have a lot more control than um, you know states that don't have that. So what SB 181 was intended to do was intended to provide more authority to local governments. Now, there's lots of reasoning of, of why and where this, this originated. And was it, it was not set in place to like foster oil and natural gas development. It was very different. But then what's different is that now post SB 181, you have 
you know, Weld County, that is, um, you know, they decided to really take on and use their authority, you know, under SB 181. And they've had quite a bit of back and forth with the COGCC. And now they have, um, you know, a memorandum of understanding. Um, but they've said, okay, well, we want to take all of the control and then we're going to process permits the way that we think they should. I think what's really interesting um, is, uh, so, in, and this is all public, but Occidental brought forward two locations inside um, the, lo you know, inside Firestone, the local government of Firestone. And um, those were the first locations ever denied in the state of Colorado. And I think what's interesting is that the town of Firestone approved the permits. So Occidental had gone in front of the board, they did the process and Firestone approved the permits and then the COGCC denied them. So I think that we are just starting to see um, not only are we, we passed extremely robust regulations that I think a lot of people are like, how do we even, you know, how do we even permit and or comply with these? And I think that, you know, when you look at a, one location now can have up to 21 mitigation plans for different, you know, different, whether it be a nuisance or compliance issues. And so, um, you know, 21 really robust plans go into that. There's an immense amount of time and resources that go into, you know, collecting all of those. And so your your sheer number of like documents and due diligence on the permit side is so much bigger under SB 181. Um, then I think that what has been challenging and why, you know, the state has not been processing permits consistently. Um, you know, it seems that the less contentious ones are getting processed um, and the what the way that SB 181 is written is there is a really large, um, there's a really large element to SB 181 that goes just beyond kind of data and science. It really opened the door and, and allowed for perception and people's emotions to be uh, part of the, the formal process. And so we're a company that believes in social compatibility with communities. So we're always at the forefront saying, you know, we need to mitigate and engage the community in these ways. Um, but we really do believe that you can have socially compatible oil and natural gas development near people like the tools and the technology do exist. So what is what we have yet to see is how is the commissioners when they bring forward a location that's been to, in, within 2000 feet and there are people and they're upset if an operator meets everything to show there's a, a, a term called substantially equivalent, meaning if they can use technologies and methods to conduct an operation that is substantially equivalent to above the impact of, of beyond 2000 feet, it should be approved. So we are not seeing those come through. So I think that's going to be something that we um, that will learn a lot more from from the state as they begin to process these permits. But we're really early on in this process. The governor and, you know, uh, the commissioners are saying, yes, we want to be processing permits, especially with the global narrative um, right now and, and the shift from, you know, even like natural gas is bad. Now it's like everything is back to fossil fuels and natural gas are critical. So it's there's a lot of really interesting things happening. Um, but, yeah, that's that's a little bit of like. Can we break out in that? I mean, that's really good color and good commentary. And it brings there's there's several sort of things I want to unpack within that. And that's that. So for for listeners also is Firestone was where we did have um, the home explosion, which was in 2017, which was a very big deal um, and a, a super big deal. And there's not a single person in the oil and gas industry that con condones that or and there's a whole 
I actually have a whole separate podcast on that from uh, several years ago that you, people, folks can check out. But that was a really big deal. And so when, when we mentioned Firestone, I think that that comes to mind for a lot of folks. Um, and partly where, but this SB 181 did sort of, uh, in, it did enforce a, or add a setback rule into it, correct? And then additionally, was did it also, because there's two things, that it also reformed the COGCC or that was separate or it was part of it because the reforming of the COGCC, changing up the people that are in it and not having like having less oil and gas people in it and also that their job was not actually the, the premise or emphasis of the COGCC, to my knowledge, is no longer to actually approve permits, but to uh, to go through the approval of permits. So the, the end goal is not to actually get the permits approved. It's to process, it's to decide whether or not these are environmentally conscious, blah, blah, all the, all these things, which really changes from actually from a legalistic perspective. It's, it's makes sense why these are so held up because there's no incentive to actually approve them. Yeah. And again, you know, I'm not, I'm sure someone's going to watch us and say like, that's not the right word. I'm not a regulatory professional, um, but I can tell you the the basic concept. Yes, they re they basically um, changed up how the commission was. They professionalized the commission um, and uh, definitely opened that up to, um, you know, it's a paid position where they have, you know, some folks that are, are not massively Pro oil and gas. I don't think they're going to say that they're anti. Um, and then, but but you have different seats now that are filled that aren't just filled from all oil and gas people. So the oil and gas industry holds one seat um, now. And how many? There's seven uh, people in it, right? I think there's five. Okay, five. five so one the, seat yeah. is just yeah. That's yes, yeah. And then um, then so so that was part of it. And then it used to be that the mission of the COGCC was to foster oil and natural gas development. And again, I might not get the words perfect. Um, but now, you know, the, the biggest element that you'll hear, hear people talk about for SB 181 is, uh, you know, protection of health, safety, welfare. And, you know, and, and that is, you know, the premise now and the charge. So it's how do you, you know, process, approve and or deny permits through that framework and that lens of protecting the public health, safety, welfare and environment. OK, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think I mean, so, you know, the, w- most folks in the industry know that this was this was pushed through really rapidly. I um, mean, folks who weren't paying attention to it, this was, it, w- it was, it was very quick. Um, and so the implications for people, I think the actual, most people in Colorado probably don't have an idea that if you're driving north of Denver, you're going to start seeing pump jacks and, and rigs. And we actually have a massive amount of crude oil. I mean, like I said before, we had 600,000 barrels a day of crude oil, largely being produced from roughly like 6,000 horizontal wells in Weld County. These are, these are wells that were horizontally drilled and fracked um, safely. Um, and this is just a, it, it's a bit mind blowing, I think, for a lot of folks. And and something I've always paid attention to is the, we have some of the most stringent emissions requirements. Some of the, we, we've had them previously. I mean, we have some of the most stringent emissions and regulatory environment in the, in the country. I mean, I was in, I was a, in London at Chatham House, I think in 2017. And I heard the head of the international, the chief economist of the International Energy Agency was referencing Colorado emission standards. And it's like, for good or bad, I always thought they were a little bit too onus because I, I, I would really, I saw the regulatory environment going in the wrong direction. Um, and I think the industry has, you know, struggled to sort of balance that, that sort of balancing act, but you are literally right in the middle of it. I mean, your business in, you know, putting up these sound walls and which, 
they didn't exist. I mean, when did we start putting up these sound walls and how, what's the, the impact to these communities and the environment has to be significant. I mean, I've been on rigs and I've been on, lo- you know, on, on frack locations and on rigs where sound walls are up. And it, I mean, it definitely has, uh, even just for lights, all, all kinds of mitigation influences. If you're, if you're near these homes and communities, um, it has to be beneficial. And I always, to, I, I don't know if people realize how quickly we drill wells now. I mean, rigs are not on location for two months. I, we can have workover rigs and everything, and I still see sound walls with those workover rigs, which is great. But it's not like these rigs are, you're, we, we take a month to drill a well, especially in Colorado. These are shallow. Is it, we drill these really fast. We spud the TDs in, in like three days. Um, and then we also frack wells pretty fast as well. We, we can do that. But these your sound walls are providing mitigation for all of that stuff. So maybe you can just you know offer feedback and color on that of exactly like when this started and how to they work and then we can get into you know the components and inflation and all that nerdy stuff yeah so um the sound walls actually originated out in like the barnet i think in you know like maybe 2010 or some sometime around there um so so there were companies that were using them for urban drilling in the barnet um before they made their way here um i think that that now if you have a home within 2000 or even you know sometimes even 2500 feet you know, other than leave our community, it's the one thing you can put up that that someone can actually see, right? And so, and I think you made a good point. It doesn't just tackle noise. It helps with light mitigation, dust, um, you know, proximity, aesthetics, different things like that. Um, so, you know, but there is, you know, Colorado, not only aside from all of your points on the, the emissions and air monitoring, um, we have the most stringent regulation, air regulations in the country. We already did. And now they're even more stringent. Um, some would even say certain things that are in there don't even make sense of, of, of what we're looking at. And we're really preliminary. You know, we, we have some studies here that, that influence policy, which now the people that were part of those studies said, Hey, we had no business using that you know, that study to influence policy in the way that we have. So, um, you know, and, and one thing is you had mentioned the term setback. So the the COGCC does not see the 2000 foot as a setback. They see it, and is my understanding, they see it as like a siting requirement more of. You can have locations within 2000 feet from people, but you have to get waivers and do all these different things or meet this substantially equivalent concept. And I think that that's where we're really going to see how things flush out. Um, and again, in the op-ed that I wrote, I basically said, don't pass these yet. Show us six locations, three that would be approved and three that wouldn't. So we're not all confused when these things come out. And that obviously no one listened to that. Um, but so anyways, we are now in the spot where we're really trying to get, you know, not only are we getting guidance documents from the COGCC um, on how things are going to be enforced and regulated, but those are coming out all the time. So it's like a moving target. And so everyone's trying to keep up and learn. So all of that stuff. Um, so there is a large noise data component that the sound walls help meet because Colorado also has a very stringent noise regulation. It has a very, very mature um, noise regulation compared to other states throughout the country. So the walls help from a compliance standpoint, but then they do really have a large um, social impact as well, I would say, in a good way in regards to mitigating um, the community or, or mitigating impacts to the community beyond just the noise aspect. Um, and so we usually install the walls right after the pad is constructed, and then the walls stay until the wells are, you know, you're through flow back and, and you're turning over to production. Um, yeah, and it, and it, it does, it really mitigates, you know, everything from, you know, pipe delivery, drilling, you know, it's, it's the whole kit and caboodle that it mitigates throughout like the life of getting that well, you know, up and going. And then even when you have 
than a well that's producing for 20 or 30 years, there is new regulations and mitigations that you have to do on the production facility side, the compressor station side, which we do as well. And I think it's it's important for people to realize, like I was recently, I was on a location um, with, with Liberty in November and I, you know, we drove up to it and they, you know, we checked in and everything. And so there was lots of security measures and it had sound walls and everything and they were fracking. Um, but I mean, when you're driving out, the noise was, I mean, there was some there was a little bit of noise you could hear on the, if, if the frack side was going, but we were hearing louder noise from the road um, because we were literally next to the highway. So there was a, and that, not that probably offset some of the noise, but the reality is like noise, everything you do can do to sort of contain it. And now obviously Liberty has quiet frack fleets um, and those help as well. So lots of noise mitigation when you're near these homes. But I also think it's important is that folks in Colorado and in probably folks outside of that have paid attention to the housing market and stuff know that Colorado is a booming state in terms of um, just development, right? So something when we talk, talk about mile high, a mile is 5,280 feet. So when we are talking about a 2,000 foot and I still call it a, a setback and, and I put my you know opinions and analysis because I think really appreciating the stringency of these regulations and the evolution of them, it has impacted business. It has impacted how many rigs Absolutely. are in the state, how many operators are here, M&A. Every, I mean, there's, there's a myriad of implications from an economic business standpoint. And so Polis now saying that they're interested in you know, rah, rah on oil and gas now, but you know, you have to actually do it. And it's just like the administration, in my opinion, saying, yes, we want to export natural gas. You have to build the pipelines and do it. And in Colorado, this is something where you can say, polls can say all he wants, but if he's not going to, if they're going to back it up on a regulatory framework of, you know, permits have to actually get approved, which has driven so many companies to do all this consolidation of just buying permits. But this, this, you know, 2000 feet, if you're putting that in perspective, it's not, it's not that far. And if you drive around Colorado, the development has been significant because people have wanted to move here. And you've had a lot of housing developments, um, you know, build near oil and gas facilities. And yes, I mean, there were things early on, especially with Firestone, that they were not done properly. And and that was an accident that should have never happened. But I mean, largely now, it's just a it's it's a reality of having lots of people and having this oil and natural gas production. I mean, in Colorado, when, when you're producing 600,000 barrels of oil from a very small area, it is a meaningful contribution to global oil and na- global oil and natural gas production. And we're producing almost three BCF a day, three billion cubic feet per day in Colorado, again, largely from these wells. Um, and that's a meaningful contribution as well. And this production is, I mean, so when you drop that a few, a couple hundred thousand barrels a day of production, I mean, Colorado is producing more than OPEC, small OPEC players. I mean, so it's just a, it's, it has a really significant ramifications and it is a state with extremely stringent regulations. So the emission stuff, everything's sort of, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but buttoned up to a large regard. So the where you can like move forward, which is seem, you know, like when you can let move people, I always like moving people up to the bar as opposed to moving the bar lower. And I think this is an example of that as sort of, okay, tell us what the regulations are and let us meet it. But if you're going to continue to change them or tweak them or morph them, this seems to me like an all I hear from clients and I hear from, you know, uh, on the, operators and and midstream and everything it's the question is always and, and the private equity and the investor side is always where is the trajectory of Colorado I mean because they just can't sink their teeth into it investors can't when they know that can we get another permit so it's just sort of we have the permits we have now and we pray you know and, and they need to be as real as possible or good permits because people don't know if we can do anything p- past that so it's like we drill up all these permits and then are we done yeah um, no, all really good points. And I think that um, I, you know, one comment on unless we, what one comment on, and I'm going to try not get us too far down a tangent here. That's fine. 
unless we change consumption patterns, the renewable goals that politicians have put forward are pretty much bullshit. So until we as consumers start to change what we're consuming and how we're doing it, doesn't mean just because we ban it in one spot, we're importing it from other areas and people just really don't understand this concept. And so it's like, if you do believe in climate change, then great. We want to be doing the, you know, we want to be drilling it here for all the environmental protections that we've talked about because places that we're importing don't hold the environment to the same, on the same, you know, level that, that we do here in Colorado and that we do here in the U S the other thing is, is that every single time that we're importing stuff, you know, from, uh, you know, again, Russia or Saudi Arabia, we're supporting like massively suppressive cultures. So I really struggle with, you know, the narrative that has been going around in regard to renewables and don't get me wrong. We believe in a completely diverse, or I believe in the in, in urban, in a completely diverse um, energy future. We are going to need all different forms of energy, and it's a pie chart, and those are going to fluctuate throughout the course of time. Um, do we want to see transition to cleaner fuel sources? And, and of course, like everybody wants that, but we have to be realistic about how we're going to get there. And so, when consumers, you know, when we make and we vote, and and again, the voters voted it down, but then when someone, mm -hmm. a politician, comes in and does what we did, until Polis decides to start regulating, oh, well, you can only have access to X amount of oil or X amount of natural gas for what you're consuming. It doesn't matter. We can still go buy whatever we want. And then we're supporting now exactly, suppressing cultures elsewhere. Right. So, and that's exactly so, what's happened all over the entire world and exactly what's exactly. happened so, and, yes, and so I don't want to get us too far down, down the rabbit hole there, but I do think it's worth noting. Um, you know, as a, so I rounded, uh, I rounded up $10 million in the private markets to start urban. And we are looking at, you know, some other strategic growth partnerships now. Um, but, you know, I, I know what it's like to have investors and I know what it's like to have investors that are concerned about an asset that's tied. And again, we're not tied just to Colorado, but we are very much so Colorado focused right now in regard to our patented product. So, um, that is something that, you know, everyone's like, your urban's completely sold out. You are undersupplying all of your customers. Why are you not manufacturing? And I'm like, until I see a consistent approval of permits flowing out of the COGCC, it's we we likely won't start up again. So we need to see this. The governor and and you know, even if you were to say, okay, forget everything that happened, you are saying that this state is open for business now. Start showing us the permits. They need to come out. They need to come out consistently. I think that you, you know, you summed up the MA activity really well that's happening here. Um, you know, that type of consolidation to be able to comply with these regulations is extremely expensive. And so I think that um, you know, you we are, we did see mass massive consolidation um here on the DJ. I think it's gonna continue. And that's both on the operator and the vendor side. Um, but yeah, for us to start start that manufacturing lineup again, which by the way, continually supported 28 labor jobs um it for two and a half years um we need to see consistency in permits and obviously there's considerations with you know commodity price and we had to come back from the oil war and everything like that but right now our holdup is the confidence that we have in how the cogcc is going to start processing permits and then what is that going to look like to your point for the life of the next five ten years well, i do think now the, oh, I mean, that has huge, I mean, that's, that's, it's a great point that I kind of want to dive into because it has huge implications. Uh -huh. I mean, lots of folks don't realize that. I mean, in the, a few years ago in the Powder River Basin, people were trying when it was really hot in 2018, people were trying to sell permits as like as a wells almost and the value was crazy. But I don't know if a lot of folks realize in Colorado because of this 
we're not steadily, you know, having these permits. I mean, we are seeing acceleration of drilling activity in the DJ in the DJ basin as a whole. There's 15 rigs. But there's 12 in Colorado. Um, you have but that's but majority of historical permits or Absolutely. ducks. Uh, exactly. So that's so. Yep. And but companies then would even so all this all this consolidation. And I, I'm giving this for listeners. I know that you know this, but I mean, all this consolidation has really been um, buying permits. And and it's there's quality quality permits as well. I mean, truthfully, you should be buying, I mean, companies that want to sell should should really be drilling, uh, <laughs> they should actually really be doing the verticals and doing the conductor pipe and setting the conductor pipe and doing your 2,000 foot verticals just like a surface casing rig. Because then, as to my knowledge, then it's basically a well. Um, and the it has it's basically in some stage of production. And therefore, when you're buying that, one, the company has to sink costs into actually doing it. But you're buying something that's very stable, right? That you know you can go actually drill that and that can't be taken from you from the government. So this is, I mean, it's just a unique and unprecedented place where it's also really good acreage. I mean, from a technical geologic rock perspective production, these are not monster wells. They don't produce a thousand barrels a day, but they consistently produce the same, like we're talking IPs of 300 to four, you know, 200 to 400 uh, initial production rate. They decline, but they are, this is, um, they're shallower wells. They're easy to drill. These are, I mean, I mean, literally it's probably lower than that it's about to td in less than three days i mean it, the lateral lengths have not increased substantially which probably will especially as things get more cumbersome but to your point you and this is i, I say this in a lot of podcasts and and as an economist it's always you need stability and predictability especially in the regulatory like in anything in business but particularly in in regulations you have to know the line of sight on how to do stuff and this actually gets into your point on on renewables and i love that you made the comments on on you know how urban sees it and i i I'm not nearly as a fan of renewables as uh, other people are, mainly because some of them are just, they just don't make enough money. We have so much inflation that's going to them now. And I think it's it, a lot of them are not realistic. There is a lot of hype around them. And companies are very, very focused on doing it, but they don't know how to do it. But the thing is with ESG, this is a real ESG problem. I mean, I was listening to Diamondback's call um, yesterday and they made a comment about i mean they opened up with talking about the war in ukraine and then they were talking about giving money back to shareholders and they were keeping production flat and then they were talking about the renewables and the esg stuff and i thought you know not producing enough oil and gas is an esg problem we are you know putting you know billions of dollars of capex to renewables that produces a lower btu output a lower energy output and not having enough energy for consumers to use is a really esg problem globally because people don't have enough energy and inflation is through the roof um and colorado is just in a really unique crux of that um so i know that was another tangent but i'm curious as like as you're thinking you know you're saying this that hey we've got to see line of sight on permits increasing or, or something what are you hearing on that and how do you feel about it i mean is it sort of this is just going to continue to percolate or is the signs that the governor is saying hey you know we are open for business is there some signaling coming down that's saying hey we're gonna have to prove this because colorado needs jobs and this is a you know this is a, a workforce and this could be really beneficial to Colorado, especially if the economy starts to decline, oil energy could actually stay relatively flat, which is really would be really, really good for Colorado. Yeah. So I think that everything that we're hearing from the governor's office is that, um, you know, that, that, that they want to see permits being processed and Colorado's open for business. Um, same thing with, um, you know, some of the, the commissioners, you know, that is, if you have conversations with them, um, especially more recently, it is, that is what they are attempting to do. Um, so, so again, I want to believe that and we will see, and I hope that permits start flowing out of the COGCC steadily. What I will say is there's also a whole nother consideration um, that so so urban's core focus is we are pro-business, 
near communities and people. So in, in the U.S. is becoming a lot more like Europe when business in general, whether it's oil and gas or renewables or crypto, it doesn't matter. A grocery store. Yep. It's becoming more and more challenging to conduct and permit and get the legal rights to be able to have a business inside and near communities. And it all comes back to the fundamental concept of people want access to everything with none of the impacts. And we all are very privileged in what we think we should have to deal with around us. So we all want access to it. We want it affordable. We want it cheap. We just don't want it near us. That is not so, so, you know, to Governor Polis or anybody, um, you know, we see just as much opposition for a wind and solar farm as we see for an oil and gas location. We see just, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're a company that has really been forged from the fire in this really challenging environment here in Colorado that's rapidly evolving. Um, the reason why now we're traveling all throughout the country and we're doing this is because there there isn't a, a like very many companies companies out there at all that make technical decisions through a social lens. So we have the technical industrial experience to know the equipment and intimately understand what is going to be the impacts of specific types of equipment. Then we also are very um, you know socially socially aware, socially minded, and so we understand that every single community is different. So that is really what Urban does, and we've been doing that for the oil and natural gas industry. But now we're doing it for we've had solar projects denied, we've had crypto projects denied, or data hosting you know facil- uh, facilities denied, um, and so it's it's again this narrative that oil and gas is doing all these awful things it's happening everywhere people want access to everything with none of the impacts and the truth is is that we're a company that believes you need to be prudent in how you're planning you need to follow your legal license these you know everyone uses the term social license in terms of engaging with the community it's no longer social license that's bullshit you engage with the community it is your legal license you will not get your ability to operate. I don't care, again, if you're oil and gas, if you're wind and solar, or if you're crypto, unless you engage the community. And so it's really fascinating to see over the course of the last year, how much we've expanded because of this, um, this one topic. So I'm curious, it will be interesting to see, um, you know, folks like Governor Polis and other areas where they've been so laser focused on oil and gas being the problem. And how is that Um, same mentality now going to show itself as other industries start to be held up with similar opposition. I bet your head was exploding because I've talked about this a ton in the podcast. I talk about a ton with clients and and just in businesses that it's, I always talk about, you know, the not in my backyard nimbyism. It's really, really real for wind and solar. And I mean, I have a lot of issues with, you know, and I, I bang on the China thing and every podcast is very serious of how much wind and solar is coming from China and that it comes from forced labor and lots of issues. So when we talk about social license and we talk about ESG, it's just I, I poke a million holes into it because it drives me bananas when we are talking about building all this stuff out. But I always like hearken this back to, you know, signing of the Paris Climate Accords by the Biden administration was a big deal. But also the first executive order, 14008 on climate change, which was a big push to, you know, green up the grid and, and reduce emissions drastically, which means you would have to take wind and solar would basically have to cover every you know square inch of available land roughly in the US everywhere and we know from if you know wind and solar folks in Colorado and you know them more intimately than I I just know the business leaders of it is hard to permit this stuff and it reminded me of 
I knew terminal operators on the East Coast when I was working in DC and they were they were um, board members. It was global partners. Um, I remember talking to them and they would we were we would just have conversations about with various terminal operators and, and refineries and we we're talking about ethanol and lots of folks on the East Coast were were pro ethanol and they wanted to reduce the you know the gasoline and the gasoline pool and, and it was green and it was wonderful. Ethanol is made from corn. It's probably not that great for the environment. You shouldn't be using food for fuel, but whatever. They wanted ethanol. You have to rail ethanol. So it was this was like before you know the crude by rail controversy and everything, but you have to rail this ethanol. And it was amazing how the people on the East Coast did not want ethanol in their communities um, because it was so it was explosive and they didn't want a rail car blowing up. And it's like, these are the same people that are advocating to have ethanol in the gasoline pool, but they don't want any of the communities. So this whole not in my backyard thing, it makes it, especially for this grand energy accelerated transition that everyone wants to do, which is largely underpinned by wind and solar. If you can't one mine that this is let alone just building the transmission lines, which we, we don't do on a regular basis. And I mean that the wind project from Wyoming to California has been held up for a decade of getting of the transmission lines. Yeah. through. So your business, I mean, I feel like that's uh, if the business can even do anything, but it's it's very valid and relevant. I'm sure you're not the only one doing stuff like that, but it's just so serious of that. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's renewables or if it's oil and gas, it is literally, like you said, it is a grocery store. It's an everything um, that you have to deal with this. And I think people do consumers and especially with these you know, I'd bet against the energy transition in a lot of different ways from understanding, not that I, I don't believe in, in, in all of the above strategies, but that uh, it, from an energy equivalent standpoint and a cost basis. Um, and actually, from a mitigation standpoint, I mean, when we're drilling, completing these wells, it's underground. You know, we're, we're done. Like, there's a lot of things you can do above ground that has a low footprint. And wind and solar tend to not have this lower footprint, but it's just, um, it's a big deal. So the, these mitigation efforts and this not in my backyard are something really important to consider of just even how you're going to progress the economy and infrastructure bills, you know, whether you're building out uh, solar and wind, whether you're building out transmission lines, even just upgrading the grid as is, there's all these things that are, are huge. And I imagine you, if you're, you know, you probably know Colorado really, really well. So, you know, trying to increase, you know, wind and solar here um, seems like it's going to be a battle. Um, and and I imagine even elsewhere, I mean, you could go to Wyoming and do wind and solar, but I mean, I, it's probably a battle there as well. I mean, I it's probably easier because yeah. you have people, but you have to be where you have less people. Yeah. And, and all great points. And it really is a battle everywhere. I mean, there are moratoriums across the country that are on wind and solar right now. So, you know, that that isn't new. In the last few years, there's been moratoriums in lots of different areas. Um, it's interesting because a lot of times it will be in areas where they have these aggressive renewable transition goals. So I do think that um, to your point, yeah, I mean, the the not in my backyard thing is happening everywhere. Um, and I think that that really what's going to be brought into the conversation more is going to be on the regulators. And um, I was giving a talk two weeks ago at a conference that was um, tailored towards the oil, educating local governments on oil and gas in general. And it's a great conference every year. And it basically talked about, um, you know, we, so we're a company that helps with the mitigation side of things, obviously, but we also um, have built a software that helps with kind of quantifying the human variable of your operation. And then you're able to overlay your operations on top of quantifying this human data element. Um, but it is something that if you're going to be doing a project anywhere, you really need to have an intimate understanding at a grassroots level of the people that are surrounding your operation. You need to be strategic. You need to be well thought out. Um, the other thing is, is that I think that 
for all of the regulators out there, fellow regulators that are having to navigate and be the ones to approve and, uh, you know, to approve and or deny stuff. Um, every single person that is in those roles right now, you better be prepared to not win Mrs. or Mr. Congeniality. And that's not your job. Like your job is if you have a regulatory environment and you have a regulatory framework and uh, business brings forward an application that's compatible with those regulations, no matter what, you are always going to have human opposition against a project. And so for whether it's oil and gas or solar or a grocery store or a bar, if you're on a planning commission at, you know, and you could be at either a local level or, a, you know, on a state agency, um, you absolutely could have a completely very well thought out idea that meets um, all of the regulation. And you're still going to have heartfelt mothers up there crying, you know, about different stuff and you can't discredit them. But people that are in the regulatory environments need to realize like, you're not going to be beloved by everybody. That's just not like that. That's not feasible for you being able to hold that position to the integrity, which is required of people that are in those positions. Absolutely. So I do, you know, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for the folks that go into those positions. I know it's extremely challenging, but I think that that's what we're going to see, especially here in Colorado is as operators bring forward these insane innovations in technology and process. I mean, this industry is so incredible with how we innovate. The Quiet Fleet is a great example of that innovation. Um, you know, if we had said in the regulations, you know, six years ago, okay, we have to have a salmon on every pad, Chris Wright never would have invested that amount of money in the downturn to develop the Quiet Fleet. So you have people that are willing to rise to the occasion to meet these new regulatory environments. And really, there's no matter what, there's always going to be some type of opposition. So in, in, as a country, we are going to be seeing this interface between business and the communities. And I think it's a contention that we're just starting to see. And it's a contention rooted really in privilege and the NIMBY, we want it, but just not here. And do you just, you know, a quick short thing, and I really want as just a business owner, your perspective in your business, um, the ability to... I mean, it was mentioned today on analysts and stuff talking about the Fed before and after in comments of onshoring. You know, we are going to we already are starting to see a lot more onshoring because of all the issues going on with China, which are really, really vast and severe. And I'm, I'm curious as to your manufacturing side of any exposure there and how that's impacted. But this onshoring in general, even then with with NIMBYism and just saying so manufacturing centers and stuff, that's great. But building out, you know, building out businesses and, and everything is there's serious aspects to that if it's in, in a new spot. But it always makes me get back to the the, the basics of this is that it, if you really want wind and solar, I'm all for it if you're going to mine for it yourself. And I just don't see I don't see the democratic world. I don't see the U.S., Canada or Europe mining heartily for the components that go into to batteries and, and solar in the polysilicon, because this is very intensive. It, one, it's just it, mining is one thing. So new approvals for mines are really hard. And then two, it's the processing. I mean, we have extremely stringent regulate. We have the highest uh, NOx, um, nitrous oxide and, and sulfur dioxide SOx regulations in the world, um, some in the world. And so our like pollutant, you know, standards are extremely high. So the ability to actually, you know, and then processing, chemi you know, processing the rare earth minerals is extremely environmentally intensive. It's why it's done predominantly in China, because they don't have these regulations. And, uh, you know, they have all kinds of issues downstream of this. But it just makes me think of from your business perspective, perspective. I mean, you're, we're talking about small wind and solar projects, maybe not small, maybe big and, and Bitcoin mining that can't even get past. So let alone mining for, 
you know, huge things of stuff that we need, stuff that everyone, nickel, cobalt and copper, you know, all this stuff, but then actually processing it. It just seems like it is not something that we would have to have a massive shift um, and it would take decades, if not longer. Yes, I agree. Um, I think that, and I don't know, you know, as much on the macro scale as you do intimately about this, it sounds like, but I, everyone knows what goes into batteries and where we source, um, you know, lots of, lots of stuff that comes out like of the Congo and in different things where we are also have a ton of human rights considerations and things like that. Um, but to look at again, taking, you know, bringing that to the U S getting it permitted, finding the area. I mean, you're talking about a massive, you know, aside from having access to the, to all the minerals that we would need. Right. Um, it, you're looking at a extraordinary, a, a project that would take an extraordinary level of buy-in to pass, depending on where it is geographically throughout the United States, obviously. So yes, I do. I do think that, um, I, I do see that as a, a very challenging thing to pass, especially if it's near people, right? Exactly. Um, and then even if it's not near people, it is still going in really stuff of certain, you know, certain capacities shouldn't be near people. But um, at the end of the day, I do think that um, we are just making it substantially more challenging for any business, nothing to the size of some of the mining facilities and capabilities that you're talking about. We're making it extremely challenging to do business here in the U.S., so when you look at, you know, the conversation of dialogue of like, oh, bring it all back here. You're like, uh, you know, right. how's, and these, what, how's that going to really mechanically work? And you, your point on legalities, I think people, uh, you know, legal precedent is huge. Um, and so I think, you know, regulations and uh, you, can, you can change stuff, but legal precedent, especially in some of the stuff, it does matter. But I think I want to loop. I know we're, we're, we're heading up on, on 50 minutes here and I know we want to keep this within within an hour. Um, and you're an ex- Heidi is an exceptionally busy um, and important woman in Denver. She's very hard to pin down. So her time is valuable. So we're going to we're going to keep this. We're going to keep this tight. Um, and so the rigs and speed in Colorado, this is something from a business standpoint, I think about from from oil and gas. And and I, I truly, as, as you do, I mean, I, I, I there are a lot of aspects of the DJ that I just love. I mean, from a rock perspective, you know, and, and Liberty started here. And I mean, we got we have some great, you know, industry leaders actually here in Colorado, some some of the better ones, actually, I think. And more we do need, you know, Chris Wright and I always talk about this, but we need more leadership um, in the oil and gas space to really actually talk about ESG in, in the right way um, and to lead in the space, uh, public companies and private companies. Companies. But in Colorado, we have this, we've had so much consolidation. And I, I, I do not think we have enough leadership and from Colorado operators to really talk about the stuff we're talking about and, and to really take it forward into um, why oil and gas production in Colorado matters, um, and why it matters everywhere. Um, but I mean, we have Civitas, which was formerly Extraction, which has bought up a bunch of companies. PDC um, has bought Great Western. Um, I mean, you just, we've had this, all this consolidation. And then you look at the permit chart and you can see, I mean, there it's big companies. Uh, Nickel Road has a lot of permits. I mean, we, we see this sort of the permits that are there. Um, and then sort of like, as you're looking at it, you're like, these are the permits, right? Uh, if we don't get any more permits, this is what's going to be drilled. But at these prices, we should also see an acceleration of drilling those permits. I mean, we absolutely should. I mean, at these prices, yeah. I, I would, you know, people need to be hedging at these prices and they need to drill, drill the crap out of this stuff because I, you know, I do not think we're going to end the year at a hundred plus dollar oil. There's lots of stuff geopolitically that could happen, but from a demand perspective, 
you know, there's nothing in the global economy that is saying it's going up, right? So for, for a demand respect, the global economy is in, in, is in pain. Um, so I think it's just, you know, and I don't think it's going to devastate the oil and gas industry by any means, but let's just pretend it's sort of 80 bucks. Regardless, I mean, Colorado oil and gas producers are, should be accelerating drilling. And to your point, if you can't, if you're saying, hey, I can't add and build out more and I'm sold out now and I can't build out more, you know, sound walls. And I want to touch on this, the manufacturing and people side. And, and if you're having issues on inflation there, but are you, what happens then? I mean, so they will just not have these sound. I assume that people are going to want to drill this stuff. They're wanting to drill this stuff now. They want to add a couple of rigs, but from an inflationary standpoint, you know, if they can't get the frack plate, if they can't get all these components, we have chemical issues, sand issues, you sort of name it less so in the DJ and the Rockies. We are not experiencing the same levels of inflation you're seeing in the Permian Basin, but we still have it. Um, so, I mean, there, I know I just threw a lot at you, but I, I'm really curious from a business perspective of saying, hey, we're sold out for the sound walls, but you're probably seeing the same. You're, you know that you're going to have an increase in drilling activity. How are you thinking about that and navigating it? And separately, you know, even if you wanted to build them out now, could you? I mean, it, from yeah. an inflationary manufacturing standpoint, is that possible? Yep. So just to manufacture right now, um, we would be about at least 30% more to manufacture, cost to manufacture. And again, it's just millions and millions of dollars to keep that line, the manufacturing line going once we start. So it's something that we, we you know, either fully commit to it for a while or we, we really don't do it because we don't do small spurts. Um, so I think that there's a ton of considerations around that piece and how challenging it is to find trade jobs and, you know, especially on the labor side. Those are all really challenging things that are obviously driving up or, you know, contributing to the increased cost of manufacturing. Um, so so going back really fast. So what we want to see is we want to see consistent permit approvals at the state and to get some assurance that we will that operators will be able to keep one or two drilling rigs going for the year. So I think that, yes, the price of oil has gone up. But can an operator bring on, do they have enough permits to bring on a full second rig to keep a rig going the whole time? You know, a lot of times, especially the majors, they don't just bring a rig for one time. So they want to be able to keep it for a while. So I think that that is why we're not seeing this rapid, you know, oh, let's just flood, you know, flood the gates with, with bringing back, you know, all these rigs is I think that there's an element of how many permits do you have right now? To your point, are they good permits and can they be drilled? Um, and then also, is it something that then consistently, you know, we are looking for some type of consistency on the development, or at least the, a lot of the majors are. Um, so I think that that, that is a very real thing. Um, you know, and then I think across the board, um, you know, at urban, we're really fortunate, especially for like our full team in house, you know, we're still a small company, you know, we massively incentivize our employees. Um, you know, we're, you know, flexible work environment. Like it's, it's, we're, we're able to attract talent and we've been really fortunate that even in this job market, we're still getting really solid candidates where we're seeing a more of a challenge is on like the labor side, right? So you're installing these giant sound walls. It's really challenging and hard work. You're outside in the elements. It's freezing in the winter. It's a sauna in the summer. And so it's really challenging to find and fill those positions. So we are seeing, you know, an increase of what we need to pay to be able to maintain people that we have. Um, and, and so that is that is definitely a real a real struggle. I think that for us, um, you know, our, a lot of our investors are, you know, they've made the decision to double down. They wouldn't have invested in a company like Urban if they didn't believe in the long term play for the industry. Um, so we're not opposed to it. I think that what is different from a vendor perspective is we always tell operators in the way that we do stuff now is like we're not interested on bidding on a pad. 
not, not of interest to us. We're interested on bidding on a drilling program for a year. And so these are deep why, relationships. It, exactly. And it's also though, like the vendor dynamic, especially here in the DJ is very different. Like there are critical vendors that you have to have. Cause to your point, if you have a permit, but you don't have the sound wall, we're not the only company that does sound walls, but in the DJ, we are who people would like to pick. Um, and, and that's again, for safety performance, how we work with, you know, the team, the products caliber, all of that. So we really approach, approach it. And this is how we were able to contract our entire fleet. So early on is we approached it as we're not here to talk about one pad. We're, we're not your vendor for that choice. We're here to talk about drilling programs and partnerships. And so I think that what we're going to see in the DJ is a lot more relationships like that, just like you've had consolidation on the operator side, you're seeing consolidation on the vendor side. And the truth is, is that you have like a Liberty is a very, very critical vendor that needs to be here in the DJ. That is somebody that's very different than if you, there, there's not 10 Liberties out there, right? So operators are starting to view and in, in starting to shift some of the operator to vendor relationships into stuff that's slightly more non-traditional. But I think that is a huge testament to showing how operators are willing to the lengths that they're willing to go to to be able to continue to operate in the basin. Um, you know, they're doing things now that are much more unconventional than what they were doing before. Uh, but really, I think that as you see, you know, fewer operators, you're going to see fewer vendors. And um, again, you know, going back to your points about leadership and advocating for the industry and stuff like that, all of that matters now in, in the vendor side, just as much as it does the operator side. Absolutely. Um, and those are re really, really valid points. And I'm jotting down some notes because there are a couple things of that. So one clarification, and we're going to close this up with sort of this. Um, I want to talk a little about the progression potentially of, of lateral links. But I, I and then lastly, the comment you just made, which is fantastic about the importance of having vendors in the state and, it, and businesses in the state. And if you don't have or if the state is not fostering an environment for them to be there, they're going to, I mean, you could see vendors leave because they have to go elsewhere and the demand is elsewhere. And I mean, I don't know if people always appreciate that folks in the Rock the Rockies are have always have been competing with the Permian since the Permian flipped in twenty fourteen when their vertical rig count and their horizontal rig count finally flipped and they had more horizontal rigs drilling than vertical rigs. And I mean this is an evolution that people have not a lot of folks in and outside the industry don't always really appreciate is this competition with where the where you know frack fleets and rigs and everything go and it impacts pricing and it impacts availability and impacts just the ability to do business. But you when you work with an operator and you're putting up a sound wall, are you you work the operator's paying you and then they're doing it for the life of this is when the rig is drilling and then we have our frack company or are you working also with those those vendors or is it strictly with the operator and the timing that the activity is going in on that on those pads yeah so we work strictly with the operator we're you know majority of the time if you see a liberty fleet you probably see an urban wall if you see an urban wall it's probably a liberty fleet mm -hmm. so we work very closely with them and we have great relationships with you know the vendors that are out there but we contract directly with the operator because really right you have say precisions there for drilling and then you've got liberty there for frack it's it's completely different. And those are two really broad scale operations with two totally different, you know, really reputable vendors that um, for us, it's, it's a, the operator secures the wall, puts it up, and then they are mitigating throughout regardless of which vendors are there, right? It's the operator's responsibility to meet the compliance. And then it's the fact that we hit so many different stages of the development that our product is used to mitigate. Yep. No, that's excellent clarification. And that's great. And it, it was just something I was thinking, I was actually looking up lateral lengths and well additions. And, you know, Colorado was no different. DJ was no different than every other basin that, you know, well additions really dropped in 2020. But 
they've still they've been muted. And I haven't actually seen the lateral length side, which is something, you know, we've seen the average lateral length in Midland right now is 13,000 foot. So incredible progress on drilling speed and efficiency. You know, frack guys like Liberty, everyone has done a really good job about, you know, really pushing this forward. And impressively, we are still in, you can actually take all the wells in, in all the major basins in the U.S. and you can put them on a normalized decline curve. And year over year, we're still eking out gains. And it was just, it made me think something about the the DJ on these lateral links is that we should see them increase, but I don't actually know if we will, because you have to have more, con- you have to, yes, we have consolidation in the space, but the consolidation is about existing permits, not about acreage. And so, yeah, you've blocked up acreage, which would be great if, you know, we, ha- we were able to permit, we would see longer laterals and we would see, you know, enhanced in different production techniques. I and mean, we should, quite frankly, right now at $100 oil, this upspacing thing should be kind of thrown out a bit. We should be we should be um, downspacing a bit at these pri- at these oil prices because it makes total sense. So that was just a nerdy anecdote that that I was thinking about. But no, I think it's your- a valid valid point. Um, and that impacts. I mean, that impacts your business and how you think about it. So I appreciate all the all that feedback. And then the last thing on the the polis thing on. Um, I was thinking about as is your you were talking very eloquently and explaining you know these service companies and these businesses and you know I think Heidi and I are both fans and really anyone who knows Chris Wright is a huge fan of of him because he is a true leader in the space. But they are a primary uh, vendor. I mean, they are a that they're based here in Denver. They're a big frac provider here in Denver, but they are obviously big in, in all these other basins. And they're just one example of many companies and yourselves included. I mean, sound walls are a little bit different, different places, but any vendor, any, any service company being based in Denver is really difficult to say, Hey, we're based in Denver and this is our core of our business. Now you could be in the powder and stuff, but you really need an office down in Casper and North Dakota. And so it's, it's, it's something that, you know, if Jared Polis needs to, you know, listen to the podcast and, and I know some of the former governors that probably should, I, I, you and I probably know them as well. Um, the thing to listen to as well is that, Hey guys, you really do have to have a regulatory environment, um, that is, that is going to start, permitting and doing these approvals because you're going to have businesses that will potentially leave the state because they can't see the path forward, right? They don't have a roadmap to accelerate business or just even maintain it. Um, and so, and that's really hard for the operators that do have the permits that have stacked these up and say, I, I've got to do something with it because then they're going to com- be competing with these, with the service providers and vendors. And it's just really problematic in especially a business that, you know, and that's why Colorado is just so unique in that it's, Hey, we have these permits and then we're doing business within that. Um, and I, I think that's that's something the state and the regulators probably have a really hard time digesting. Yes. Um, and I think that you, you bring up a good point about service companies that are here, especially ones or service companies that, um, you know, like are, are national or global, like like a Liberty. Um, and I think that, you know, it's interesting because we are a service, again, that that we, you know, I used to work at Anadarko and, you know, built their mitigation program and so really forged and built urban for the environment here in Colorado. That is not the norm for a service company. Absolutely. So to look for service companies that are like, oh, there's social contention with oil and gas development. I'm going to go dump tens of millions of dollars into that. That is not there, there, there isn't another Urban 2.0 that's coming into fill if Urban was to leave here. So, so very, very valid points on your your end there. Um, and so, I think that it is really critical that the governor and um, you know, really any state that's considering regulatory framework like what we are currently under here in in Colorado. You know, California is a great example. Um, but uh, 
you have to have some type of consistency. Otherwise, you are going to have businesses leave. And so, um, you know, Liberty's Liberty's based here, Urban's based here. But some of the smaller service companies that can pack up and move that are not based in specific, they might not ride this out. And so that is something that um, needs to be at the forefront of the governor's mind when he, you know, not that I would think that service companies are necessarily at the forefront of his mind. Um, but I think that that's something that is really valid is that we need to, um, you know, it needs to be a part of the conversation, the consideration, because a lot of the service companies out there are not tied to this basin um, in the capacity maybe or the commitment that Urban and Liberty is. Absolutely. No, and that's, I think that's a, a great, um, those are great points. Um, and I appreciate you commenting on that. And um, Heidi, I absolutely appreciate your time. Uh, you have been a fantastic guest and really a great, a different sort of take on, on sort of, in many ways, a different sort of take on, on ESG, but um, a unique business and a business owner in Denver. Um, and so it is a truly a pleasure, really appreciate your time. And um, we will be, I'm sure we'll be chatting again in the future and we would love to have you back. And I know you, she has a slug of other podcasts she'll, she's going to be on, but you know, this is the first of the slug. So, <laughs> so we're, no, I was honored to have you. It, no, I, I had a great time, really enjoyed the discussion, loved the podcast. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's great what you're doing and it's really important that we're having these conversations because, um, the struggle is real for everybody and we have to be really thoughtful of how we choose to rise to the occasion to continue to advocate for, you know, sustainable development. And when I say sustainable development, I mean sustainable oil and natural gas development continually here in Colorado and the U.S. So um, I think it's going to be an exciting time to see as the global narrative has shifted so much um, in the last few months. So A absolutely. Happy to be I here. I couldn't agree more. Love to um, come back. Awesome. Well, we will definitely have you back and appreciate it. So thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Ha see you next week. Bye. Thanks.